Hi, welcome to the Trauma Thrivers podcast. Delighted to have you with us. I'm Lula Bentz, your host, a psychotherapist, a trauma expert, and a survivor myself. Lovely to have you with us. The Trauma Thrivers podcast is for anybody who has been through any sort of developmental trauma or who has complex PTSD. This podcast aims to help educate, inspire and support those of us that are on a trauma healing journey. We've got stories, steps and various solutions to trauma to help you heal. If you'd like more information or tips or tools or strategies, please go to traumathrivers.com. You can also find this podcast on my YouTube channel, Lula Bent's Trauma Thrivers. If you'd like to join our community of thrivers, please find us on Facebook under Trauma Thrivers. Hello, 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 Thrivers. Hello. Hello. Welcome to everybody. And gosh, it's nice to be back tonight. We've got a dear friend of mine, Annie Bennett, who I am delighted has agreed to come into the Facebook group because I've known Annie for, I think it's nearly 20 years. It's 20 years. This Next year, I think it's 20 years. It's some considerable time. And Annie, I met when I started working at the Priory, which is an addictions rehab in southwest London. And Annie was one of the gurus then. And I looked up to her massively. And she was really lovely to me. And I've never forgotten it. And we've, I think we became friends about five years after that, didn't we? I think we bumped into each other at um, one of the... Um exhibitions in London yeah. um, and that rekindled the friendship yes we have and I'm delighted and I I wonder whether you'd mind introducing yourself a bit um, and how we met and how you got into this field and a bit more about who you are because you know I know you're a brilliant therapist and the group are very we're very privileged to have you here but yeah how, how did you get into this Annie tell us a bit more about you well, I'm really honoured to be invited actually onto Trauma Thrivers. So thank you so much, Lou and uh, Mel, for inviting me. So when we met, Lou, um, I had just come back from working at the um, Meadows yeah. Clinic for Trauma and Addictions in Arizona. Um, I'd been there for, I think, about six months. Um, before that, I qualified to, to be psychotherapist and counsellor. Um, I did some charity work um, with Cruise in 1994. So I had a sort of a, a bit of a baseline of, of client work there. And then I went to work part-time for a charity in Guildford for um, addictions. Um, and that was a drop-in um, place. And that was very good, Sadas. Um, and so when I met you, I think I'd been working for about six years and um, yeah, the time at the Priory was, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really, really good, just as it was at the Meadows. It was very informative. It was a, um, a good group of people um, providing good care for people that were struggling with trauma and addiction. Yeah. Um, and since then, I, well, I was in private practice as well as working at the Priory and in 
doing the trauma program at the Priory. Um, and uh, private practice in Harley Street for several, several years. And then somewhere along the tra my travels, I decided to come and live in Spain and work from Spain remotely, which I've been doing for about five years now, something like that. Um, and it works very well. And in non-COVID times, I would have clients come here to do couples work or individual work, and we would address over a period of days, the issues that were problematic. Um, and that was working well too. Of course, all that's changed now. Yeah. Um, so I'm still in private practice, working remotely and, and loving the work that I do. And I feel always feel so honored to be working with the clients that I do work with. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a, I don't know whether it's a law of attraction or it's a, a spiritual thing or, but there's just such, a good match with the uh, people that I work with. And I'm sure you find that and other therapists find, find that, but you know, it's, it's very joyful work. It's very rewarding work, even yeah. though it's um, life struggles, yeah. life is a struggle at times. So yeah, exactly. it's just being human, yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I remember, and I, I think I've said to Mel before that, you know, when I started god two decades or so ago i think it was at the priory you were the only one really mentioning the trauma word and um you know doing the trauma egg in those days where certain people would come and work with you for the day and do their trauma egg but it was still i think in those days very much still the addiction model and trauma wasn't mentioned so much so you were kind of brought that back really from the states and I, I know that things have changed very much since then but then you went on to write and I I felt that you were very much one of the pioneers with the love trap writing about sex and love addiction and focusing on 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 you know those areas Yes, and of course, at working at, at, in Arizona at the Meadows, I was right in the hub of the pioneers of all of that work. And so you know, I just absorbed it. It was fascinating work. And so I, I was so, so uh, fortunate to bring it back and then start working with that at the Priory. Um, and yeah, you're quite right in the UK. And actually, I remember visiting um, a treatment centre in, in Italy. can't remember the name of it now. Um, and it was after I'd been working at the Priory so it was somewhere in the middle of 2000 maybe 2005 or 6 or something like that um, and I mentioned the trauma word at this Italian treatment centre and there was an absolute shutdown it, they did not want to talk about it it was far too um, I don't know whether it was overwhelming for them or opening up a can of worms or however they and perhaps it's a society, it's a cultural thing, I don't know, but they didn't want to go there, which I thought was missing pretty yeah. much. The, yeah. um, but yes, it, it, and I think the trauma egg was um, introduced by somebody called Marion, somebody or other, I can't remember her last name now, but I, I worked with Patrick Carnes, Dr. Patrick Carnes at, at the Meadows, yeah. and he used the trauma egg, and it was, it was just very, very valuable as a piece of work in group. It works yeah. really, really well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, working through people's traumas that, you know, aren't always on the battlefield, the sort of, you know, the war veterans, but actually sometimes life can feel like a battlefield. 
particularly when we're young, which is when a lot of our traumas start for us and we're in a what we think is a safe environment, family environment, and or it might be the school environment or we think that we're going to be safe there and it's just not. And so we're trying to figure that out as children. How, how, do, I, how do I cope with this? And of course, that's, that's really the, the root cause of, or the root soil, if you like, or the foundation for trauma. Mm-hmm. I'm just fascinated really, Annie, because, you know, I, I've come into the field, you know, quite a bit later than, than, than you and Lou, and that, that's no reflection on age, by the way, it's more a reflection on life circumstances. Um, and, you know, it still, it just, it, it just amazes me that, you know, even when I started to sort of, you know, become interested in the field, that that trauma was still at that point, you know, not as openly or as widely discussed as it is now, which is probably still even not enough. Um, and, you know, it just, yeah, just hearing, you know, that story of, of when you were in Italy and, you know, how trauma and, and unfortunately, I think we still can experience that, which is, which is why groups like this are so you know, are so valuable um, and why the work that you do and, and Lou and I do is just so valuable now. Yeah, yeah, because we need to release those, those trauma blocks, if you like, and the bonds that we have. Uh, we need to release them. So talking about them, sharing our stories in group is, is very, very um, cathartic for us. And yeah. you're talking about the book I wrote, The Love Trap. That, that um, yeah, that, that took me some years to write, actually. And, uh, and, and thank you for the kind words that you said about the book. Um, I think that, you know, love addiction and sex addiction are quite widely misunderstood. I think with all addictions, it is a distraction from the pain that we're experiencing and perhaps the pain we just don't even know we're in. So it it just leads us away from those discomfort or uncomfortable feelings. So we'll, and also I think it is representative of our lack of self-esteem, our lack of self-love. So something else becomes more important than the person. So alcohol is a much safer relationship to have than the relationship I have with myself because I can't trust myself. And with with trauma, one of the um, issues around trauma is it disturbs our ability to make decisions that are trustworthy. So we we lack that confidence in making good decisions. Um, And so, yeah, so fantasy, is, is a way of avoiding the self. And it unfortunately leads us into addictions like love addiction and, um, and sex addiction. They're quite sort of co-linked really. And before we go into those, would it be okay to share with people how all of that might be linked in your opinion to developmental trauma? And ha- you know how we pick those or have those kind of relationships because maybe of early trauma in attachments that we've had. Oh, oh certainly, you're absolutely right there, Lou. That you know, if a person has had disrupted um, attachment issues, they're much more likely to be led towards a love addicted um, relationship or a fantastical or fantasized relationship. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, because the child is longing to be loved and it doesn't understand what love is. It just knows that it's missing something and it's longing and it creates this fantasy. 
and those fantasies are built up of what they're witnessing in other relationships perhaps or what they're seeing on the movies or you know so they're, they're, they're creating they're wonderful children are at creative work and so they create this fantasy and and that, those fantasies get then transferred onto relationships growing up into other um, relationships as we are romanticizing or, or entering into sexual relationships so yeah so the fantasy often as I was trying to say earlier about addictions it's the um, lack of relationship to the self that yeah. gets transferred onto something else I say something else rather than someone else because because it's so objectified it really doesn't um, include the person it just is fixated on the fantasy of what that person thinks they need or what what they think is the love relationship if that makes sense I'm not sure if I've made sense of that yeah I did I just just as you were speaking Annie what occurred to me is um, perhaps what might be helpful for some of the people that are, are listening to this or watching us um, what, what sort of are the the symptoms or the signs of being a love addict or in a love addicted relationship? It's really good and a really good question, but it's also a very difficult question to, to pose to a love addict because they are so in the fantasy that denial just mm -hmm. blocks everything. And so whether friends or family or co-workers can see that you're dissociated, that you're not actually grounded in reality, that won't penetrate. So seeing the signs would be if you've got brave family or friends or co-workers that can penetrate that fantasy, you know, that's going to be helpful, but it's not often enough. And it's usually when something, a crisis happens in the relationship that is the first sort of crack. The, when those crises happen or those cracks appear, those are the, the moments when the love addict can start considering what's happening here and and so it's like a crack into reality or a, a bit of a gap into reality um but while while a love addict is in denial while they are in that um, fantasy place they're not going to see any flags afterwards after after the exit of the relationship is when you can really do the work and and it usually takes a earthquake a, a real big yeah. crisis um, and that can be, well, it could be all sorts of things, betrayal usually, um, but something very groundbreaking that makes the love addict ask questions. What is going on? And before that point, all sorts of things could have been going on, but they will have been um, ignored. They would have just, you know, a normal person wouldn't have done, somebody that wasn't in their addiction, would they would have used boundaries and they would have noticed flags, they would have cut back, walked away, confronted, they would have done the right sort of things to keep that person in a safe and healthy place. But a love addict in their addiction or any addiction, you know, addicts aren't there, they're not able to do it. And can you, can you tell me the difference or tell us, Annie, about the dance and what the difference is between, you know, the two words that, that are often banded about, which is the love addict and the love avoidant and how a love addict will pick a love avoidant and vice versa, and then sometimes swap roles. 
Yeah, it's it's complicated. Well, the love love avoidant is quite clear. It's that they they but they're very seductive mm-hmm. and, and and often quite narcissistic. And Mel and I are, are, yeah. are nodding yeah. our heads I've been, on that I've been one. seduced seduced by more more than my fair share of love avoidance. I can tell you that. <laughs> and it's ironic because they're so skillful at that seduction, of course, and then it picks up and 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 the the love addict just runs with it because that's yeah. that's heaven. You know, it proves their value, it proves their worth, it proves that this must be love. You know, that he's absolutely perfect, my ideal mate, or she, of course. Um, and, and so that's, that's really what the love addict is looking for, is that level of seduction. And it swoops them up. So all those, um, all those pheromones are racing around, the uh, oxytocin is racing around there, and, and it, it is... Actually, scientifically, it's impossible to make sound decisions when you're in that stage of relationship, but it continues and it intensifies for love addicts and for avoid and for the avoidant. So the avoidant will use superpowers of seduction to make the conquest, if you like. But once they've got the conquest, like any good narcissist, (laughs) they're going to really drop you or they're going to put you in a jar and just leave you on the shelf. So you're going to feel isolated and uh, let down and what's, you know, what's happening. But the avoidant will come back in and, and lull you back in. So you'll often get that, that swinging from, you know, one end of the scale to the other and that, you know, seesaw going on. And it's very disturbing and it's really unhealthy. And actually, I, from, from what I know, what you've just described is, is trauma bonding. Um, it's bonding yeah absolutely and could could you say a bit more about trauma bonding for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what that means yeah I think well there's a very very good book um written by Dr Patrick Carnes called The Betrayal Bonds and I often refer clients to that it's very clear and it's also you can work through the book um but it's a little bit like Stockholm Syndrome you know the the trauma bonding and so we when we love the idea of love and we fantasize that and objectify it, we are no longer loving ourselves. We are preferring to hold that fantasy as the most important thing in our lives. So we negate the self. And um, so the excuses will come out just like, you know, with Stockholm syndrome, We'll protect the perpetrator, the offender. We'll put them on a, a pedestal, um, and, and and basically they can get away with anything. And the more you give them as a love addict to the avoidant, the more they will take and, and take for granted. Um, and so it really, they're both very wounded ends of the scale, and they can flip. Actually, you're quite right, Lou. They can they can flip roles, um, which even gets more complicated. Yeah. And I think, you know, the one of the things that I've definitely noticed that has played out in, in my life is that, you know, the the kind of the, the core belief or the, the fear for both the addict and the avoidant is exactly the same. It's, you know, the fear of abandonment, rejection, <laughs> being yeah. left. But it just plays out in 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 those in those different ways, mm-hmm. um, and it's really yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I know when I kind of realised my my sort of 
ways of, of my well my love addiction basically and, and looking at, at the behaviors around that and and also recognizing those points where I would move into the avoidant as well um, mm-hmm. it was just it was just really really interesting mm-hmm. um, and I think another thing that was just occurring to me as as you were talking Annie is you know we're talking about love and and sex addiction and I know that they are very closely linked but what would you say would are the main differences between the two um because I think for, for just sorry just to caveat that I had a lot of resistance around kind of talking about my love addiction because I thought everybody would think that I was a sex addict um and and there was a, a kind of I, for, for me there was like some kind of shame that went along with that so I just wonder if you could explain if there are differences, what, what they are and, and how to identify those perhaps. Well, both are coming from a deficit. So they're both lacking in love and, um, and value and self-worth. So the love addict would have sex to be close to the sex addict. The, the, there's a very clever way of putting it the other way and I, it's completely slipped. I don't know if you can remember the other way of putting it. So the sex addict sleeps with someone for a reason and it, the love addict sleeps to be close. Um, so I, well, I would have thought the sex addict sleeps with somebody to gratify their own needs and, and, and yeah, to, for, for more power and control really, because it's not about being closeness, is it? It's, it's certainly not about being close. No, you're absolutely right. No. But, but for the love addict, it is, it's an affirming act. Yeah. So they, they're feeling, um, yeah, they're feeling satisfied in that I am close, I am loved. And of course, it doesn't mean that for the sex addict at all. No, no. Um, but they're both, as I said, coming from a, a, an emotionally deficit position, um, yeah. trying to get satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've often heard that, you know, sometimes love and sex addiction cannot not coexist on some level, even if somebody is acting in or acting out, i.e. they're on the kind of anorexic or avoidant phase in Mm. either love or sex. It's all it's all Mm. about where we are on the spectrum. On the yes, on the scale. Yeah, at any one time. I think a lot of it comes down to the avoidance of intimacy or the craving of intimacy, doesn't it? I think it's that, but but essentially, I mean, I, I know for me, certainly, even as a love addict, you know, when that intimacy was kind of there and it, it felt like it was, you know, somebody was getting too intimate, that's when I would flip and become the avoidant because it suddenly became, for me, unsafe. Exactly. It became too intimate. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think there's a, a big piece, you know, in this around that, that intimacy. Yeah. So sexual anorexia, as I remember with um, Dr. Patrick Kahn saying, it's about fear or dislike of sex. And so if you go into the history of that, that person going into their childhood, there will be some um, events in there that will have created that yeah. need stay away from sex because it's far too risky to to um maybe you're absolutely right there Mel about the intimacy it's too risky it's too frightening and they just don't and that's 
usually because there's been an enmeshed relationship with a, an adult, whether it's a parent or, or, or not. But um, yeah, sexual anorexia is, is yeah, yeah, very painful. It's just the other way of, of the other end of the scale of, work, of acting out with multiple sexual partners. Yeah. 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 Which can get quite crazy. Well, you know, I remember, you know, working at the Priory and, and I used to assess people and my job was to do all the assessments at the weekend. And, I, and it sounds funny, but I always used to get the sex addicts on a Sunday. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I, I did, um, which was, you know, quite intriguing. Um, but I, I, we used to send them in the old days, too, at that time to something called SLA which yes. is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Yes. And those were the 12-step meetings that everybody that had SLA issues or intimacy issues used to go along to SLA, so. Is that still operational, Luke? Yeah, very much so. Very <laughs> much so and very growing. I used to hear some stories come back from my clients around um, that there would be predators hanging around the meetings and the same with codependency anonymous as well but yeah yeah so I, I think meetings and group work is really really powerful and supportive but it, again it needs to be you know yeah. you need to be careful yeah there are men only and women only meetings for SLA yeah which is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is uh, yeah. very sensible in some some ways for some people yeah. but you know anybody watching who's in this who who can fall into the slightly addictive slightly avoidant you know slight attachment issues which is most of us with trauma how do we start to have in your experience, healthy, more healthy, bounded, functional relationships? I think what's really important is once you're out of that relationship or once you're in a position, if you're in a marriage and, and you're, you've been betrayed and you, you want to work on a relationship that's healthy, if you've got two willing people that want to do it, so your husband or your wife is in recovery, um, and you want to start looking at yourself, um, it's going to be important to look at your own traumas. And it's also going to be really, really important to start seeing your part in that. So what point did you, when you look back and reflect on um, the relationship, at what point did you start not um, using your boundaries? At what point were you just saying, oh yeah, that would be fine. Or, you know, just allowing things to be swept to the side rather than confronting them. I think it's really important to start taking self um, accountability so that you can then work with your partner or with a new partner uh, in a different way, or in a way that loves yourself more than the addiction itself. Absolutely. This so, is a, a slightly, slightly controversial question, maybe, Annie. But... I love it. Mel always asks <laughs> a slightly controversial question. Go that's why, that's why you've got me here, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> How important do you think monogamy is in romantic relationships? Well, I think it's, you know, really down to the couple. I think... Um, if they are mature enough to have honest conversations and also about the consequences of what that really means um, and 
And sometimes it can mean that a relationship starts and it starts in a loving way or it develops rather into a loving relationship. And then you've got, you know, got a different set of problems. So, yeah, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have my own personal view, views about it. But I think it, if that's a conversation a couple have started to have, they need to be real about it. Um, and is it being driven by one part of the couple or both or you know and, and just some honest dialogue needs to be happening with that yeah yeah I mean yeah, you know, go on yeah it's it, well I'm just you know trying it on as, as I do thinking well I, I think you've got to be a certain type of person because you know otherwise you would see it maybe as a an affair or a betrayal or a if you're if you're wanting a monogamous relationship which many people i think do maybe i'm not going to say that um you know it it uh, how do you cope with that if you don't want it and how do you cope with betrayal or how do you cope with somebody that's you're in love with that's having an affair or having other relationships well, I think it's it's a difficult one if you're a couple and one of the parties is saying, look, I think we should have, you know, choices outside this sexually. Yeah. Uh, I think that you have to be honest with yourself. And, and sometimes that's the most difficult thing to be is honest with yourself rather than yeah. honest with someone else. Because until you are really honest with yourself, you can't have those conversations. Um, but then if, if you've if you're in a relationship and then you find that you've been betrayed, how do you get through that? Well, there's a book written, I can't remember who it is that's written it, but I remember the title being, My Husband's Affair Was the Best Thing That Happened. Um, and, and so it can be a, a time um, where the crisis brings up deep growth and development within you know, the couple, the conversations that weren't happening before, that have to, be ha have to happen rather, after if they're going to salvage their relationship some do some don't i think patrick khan says or said this is many many years ago that it was usually after a betrayal of sex addiction it's about 18 months of uh, of blame and uh, hysteria that goes on from yeah. the injured party but of course when you come through that and then start to look at well who is the injured party um, and what part did i play in that and um at what point perhaps could I have confronted um, these things? And yeah, so it's that enabling piece, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And what I never forget one uh, therapist once saying to me that, um, you know, if she has somebody that's come to her that has had an affair, you know, her, what she would ask them is, what weren't you getting? What needs of yours weren't being met? And that really struck me because I kind of thought, you know, how how quick we are sometimes to actually blame and shame the person that has had the affair um, or, 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 you know, committed the betrayal, so to speak, um, without sort of always knowing the full story or the full reasons behind that. Um, and, and I felt when I remember when she said that to me and it just felt like a very compassionate place and I think you know we we always talk about 
you know, coming to addiction from a place of compassion, because as you quite rightly said, Annie, uh, you know, addiction is about masking pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just interesting, isn't it, how we as a society, I think could be quite quick to judge um you know any kind of addiction but particularly if it's a sex addiction and that sex addiction has played out in an affair um yeah yeah and I think the level of shame in sex addiction is 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 truly intense really intense and one of the most challenging addictions perhaps other than anorexia um is very very challenging to work with um and for the person to grapple um, and, and let alone for the partner and the family to, to grapple with. Um, it's a very, very painful addiction. I think when you talk about what weren't you, what, what needs weren't you getting, I think for any of us, it's, it would be useful if we wrote down a list of what are my needs and wants. Do I know that even? And, and for many of us, we don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, but I think that whether you're in a relationship or you're not, it's a very good practice to, to start looking at what are my needs and what are my wants. Yeah. Um, and in a relationship, yeah, to, you know, if you've got a mature relationship, you can, you can look at that list and you can go through it together. And, and yeah, I think it's an act of maturity to do that sort of thing. Mm. And, and lastly, if we are in a relationship where, you know, there is a breakup or, or we can't, you know, make it back together somehow how do we deal when there are children or there are others in the family or other repercussions you know to us ending the relationship what's what's the best way to cope with that for anybody that's thinking I you know I maybe need to get out of a of an abusive relationship or I need to maybe step back or withdraw or 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 this isn't working anymore but but I can't I can't move away because of the kids or because of something yeah. else or for a reason. Is yeah. there any words of wisdom that you have for? for it's, it's, it's very, I've done it myself. It's I very know you have, hard. I know. Yeah. It's I very know. hard when you've got children. Um, yeah. Actually, at, at no matter what age, it's hard. Um, but it's also not a good model for the children to be living around. And, and so looking at it through that lens, I think is quite helpful. Um, but there can be financial reasons as well as children reasons. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why couples stay together. But again, depending on the maturity of the relationship will depend how that is managed by the couple. If you're with a narcissist and you need to leave that abusive relationship, sadly, I you know, can say that narcissists will use the children to hurt you in any way they can for as long as they can. And so the children aren't seen as individuals by the narcissist. They are merely pawns in a strategy the narcissist is uh, plays. So leaving a relationship um, that's abusive is a must. How you do it um, and what your hopes are for the future really depend on what kind of abuser you're looking at. If it's a betrayal and the man is or the woman is, you know, relatively, well, not abusive in a narcissistic way, um, then hope uh, with with all goodwill, the couple should be able to, there's a should word, 
should be able to work it through um, in a reasonable sort of way. But it, it just, you know, it depends. And, and there's so many th good therapists out there that can help guide a couple through that process. It doesn't have to be war. I've worked with some clients over the years where they have decided their relationship isn't going to continue. And, and it's been very peaceful and very mature. And on the other hand, hand it's, it's, I've also worked with people where that hasn't been possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you said, um, earlier just then Annie really resonated with me and it's something that I say to you know help my clients a lot which is about what you're modeling to the children and and actually by staying in an abusive relationship what you're saying is this is okay to be treated like this you know I it's okay to abandon yourself completely for another person to hurt you um and and I think you know that is how the, the cycle continues Right, and, and or, it's okay, or it's okay to abuse someone. Yeah, absolutely. So they repeat the actual abuse because yeah. they've seen it normalized. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Heartbreaking. Are there any other messages that you would like to speak about, Annie, or get across for anybody watching that's that's either in a love avoidant, love addicted relationship or an abusive relationship or with a narcissist. I know that tomorrow we've got Caroline Strawson coming on to talk more about the, the narcissistic side of relationships rather than the love addicted side, but they, they all kind of no. merge. Yeah, over, overlap, don't they? Yes. Um, I think if you are finding a pattern of love addiction in your life, please seek help um, because it's just a story that will repeat. There's the bond, the trauma bond is the repeat uh, um, trauma repetition. Um, so it's how it's, it's, it would be useful for them to, for whoever that is to seek group work, whether it's at um, an anonymous group or a codependency group, make sure it's a safe group get a therapist, get a coach, get some help because these are very intense addictions mm -hmm. and you often need outside help, not a friend or a family member. You need somebody that is skilled um, and uh, in this profession to help. And so I would, I would say that. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with sex addiction, get into an anonymous um, um, support group and really start working either the steps. And if you don't, if you can't do the steps and I've got clients that have never wanted to do the steps and that's fine by me, um, find a good therapist, get some support, go to the groups, even if you don't want to do the steps um, and just find your, be honest with yourself and get yourself through it. And, and there is life on the other, on the other side, but it, it, is, it is a journey and it's a journey that needs resources and lots of self-love yeah yeah so love yourself yeah beautiful thank you well we've loved having you here today haven't we mel absolutely yeah really. many words of wisdom thank you so much thank you again honestly it's a it's a privilege and a pleasure to have you here i hope we can tempt you back at some point as oh, well yes it's yeah. been lovely really lovely and enjoyable i hope it's been of help to some of your listeners yeah, I'm sure, sure it, it will be. be. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it will. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope it helped you in some way, and I really hope to see you back here soon. 
If you have anything to share on today's experience or podcast, please nip over to the YouTube channel or the Facebook group Trauma Thrivers and let us know there.